0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're going to discuss about the regenerative techniques for larynx today. We are joined by a very distinguished guest, Dr. David G. Lott, who is a professor at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. He's chair of the Division of Laryngology. Autolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery in Mayo Clinic, Arizona. He's also the director of the Head and Neck Regenerative Medicine and Transplantation Program and associate director of the Center for Regenerative Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Lott, for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Dr. Lott, I would like to set the stage of your work by asking a question on how many patients of laryngeal cancer do we see and how are they usually treated in ENT?
1: So laryngeal cancer is a a large problem. It's one of the most common head and neck cancers that we see. And perhaps the biggest problem with larynx cancer is that the larynx controls so many of our vital functions. So if you think about what we do with our larynx, it's responsible for our ability to eat. It protects our airway when we eat. It's responsible for our breathing. Again, it controls our airway and allows us to breathe and then it controls our ability to communicate. It's how we express ourselves and how we get our personalities across to other people. And so when people have problems with their larynx, then they lose those functions.
0: It is very hard to be a human being and not being able to communicate. And I understand it's hard for them to smell the food too, because that's also required to have when you have a normal larynx. So And the scope of the problem, which I read in one of the write ups uh, from Mayo Clinic is they said 60,000 Americans, not all of them are coming to Mayo Clinic, have their larynx removed due to either disease or trauma. So this is a huge problem. How have we been managing cases uh, till now?
1: So to go back a bit to your first question, when people have a larynx cancer. There are two primary ways that this is treated. Uh, First is through radiation treatment. And the second is through surgery or some combination of the two of them. With radiation, what we see happens is that although the radiation is focused on the site, the entire larynx and the entire throat is involved in that radiation field. So you get some scarring of the voice box. And over time, people can lose function just from the scarring process that occurs over the years. From a surgical standpoint, we try our best to remove just the area that's involved with the cancer, but many times when you remove that area, the larynx itself will lose function. And so then what happens is you have to remove the entire voice box because it's much easier for the patient to to be able to eat, breathe and drink without their larynx in place essentially what we're trying to do is trying to find ways to prevent that from happening be more specific from the cancer that we're removing, you know, like you had uh, alluded to when you kind of lose these, these functional abilities it's very isolating. You know, imagine sitting down to a meal, not being able to smell the food, not being able to eat the food. Um, you become very socially isolated with people.
0: And I've heard you talk elsewhere. Uh, somebody has a laryngectomy, they also have a risk of drowning during a shower. They have to be very careful to cover that open area in the trachea. Is that correct?
1: That is correct, yeah. So again, if you think about what the laryngectomy, once your voice box is removed, you have a hole here sitting in your neck. Again, one of the functions of your larynx is to protect your airway, so nothing can get down into your airway. Well, if you just have a hole here and the larynx isn't there, then any water that hits that hole can get into the lungs. And so things like taking a shower, you know, even sitting on the side of a pool, if you accidentally slip in or, or fall in or anything like that, that's a life-threatening problem for people.
0: So let's go about your journey into how you went from being an ENT doc trained in this area to what you're doing now or using regenerative technology for Larry's.
1: Yeah. Thank you for asking that. It's, it's been a very long, interesting journey for sure. Um, you know, I went to in my ear, nose, and throat residency, and I was lucky enough to be at the place where they did the first ever larynx transplant. I was already interested in laryngeal surgery and laryngology at that point. So that was a very in- big interest of mine. And so I was able to do a lot of work in that lab and really under- come to understand the true function of the larynx, the true problems with dysfunction of the larynx. But again, most importantly, the huge quality of life impact that it has on people. So early in my career, most of my interests were focused on laryngeal transplantation. And then as time went on and science progresses as it does, the field of regenerative medicine really started to to take off. And the, the benefit of regenerative medicine is that it holds the same promise that transplantation does in terms of restoring function, but doing so without the need for any immunosuppression. So now you're taking a technology that has a wonderful impact on quality of life, and you're removing the main drawback from that technology. So here's even a greater, safer impact impact for patients. And so uh, when I started at the Mayo Clinic, established our head and neck regenerative medicine lab, and really focused on the foundations of trying to move forward in this new area of regeneration while still holding true and allowing uh, for the technology of laryngeal transplantation. So we have both components, regenerative medicine and transplantation.
0: Can you make our audience understand when they think about transplantation, they think about kidney transplantation or liver transplantation, that seems to be happening thousands of them every year. Larynx transplantation is a whole different deal. It's an extremely complex procedure with microsurgery and everything else. as I understand, um, you don't have anything to that level of uh, the numbers as far as larynx transplantation is concerned. Is it because it's technologically, so technique-wise, very difficult to do?
1: Yeah, I think there, there are a few different reasons why it hasn't become commonplace yet. Part of it is there, there are some ethical concerns to it. So you're taking a non life saving implant or a transplant, and submitting people to immunosuppression. So there are some ethical considerations there. Is it, is it ethically right to do that for somebody? And I think, you know, since those initial questions were first asked, I think the answer by most people and most ethicists is that it absolutely is, right? So this is patient decision, patient driven. And it doesn't take very long for you to see somebody that, under, that has undergone a laryngectomy or some of the laryngeal function to say, hey, you know what? They may be living, but they're not living. And so this gives them back that life, that quality of life. So I think the ethical component to it has in large part kind of gone away or at least been answered some some of the questions there. The other part of it, like you said, is that the surgery itself is quite complex. So this is an all day, sometimes all night surgery. You look at kind of maybe 18 hours or so for the surgery. So it's multiple teams and there are a lot of important details that you have to be able to make sure work reestablishing the nerves so the nerves function properly, reestablishing the blood vessels so the it's perfused and then lastly it's just all the different things that are needed within an organization in order to make this happen so if you you know it's just not a surgeon doing a surgery um, it's transplantation and, and bringing the transplant team in is rehabilitation it's the, it is the surgical side of things it's speech therapy swallow therapy so there's a large group of people that all have to be on board in order for this to work.
0: It looks like when one has that kind of rigor and training, that institution and the surgeon who's already trained, maybe an easier jump to the regenerative medicine or I'm making too easy an assumption, but it's a very different science. You have to be a maestro with your hands as far as constructing surgery and all that. Also be a basic scientist of a substantial repute to be able to pull the regenerative part. And understand that part of the science so it needs somebody unique like david lott to pull both the worlds together having understood that are you really excited now that we have this option available another option for patients who have got landing victimry, uh, other than just transplantation and waiting for it and the complexity of it and now that we have regenerative techniques that's a huge option for them
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah. And and to your point, it's luckily it's it's not just David Lott that gets to come in and do this. It is definitely a team approach and a team science part of it. So yes, my background, the skills kind of helps drive the enthusiasm forward, but it isn't without the rest of the team members to really kind of hone in the science and make, make that work. But the regenerative medicine component really takes the best of what transplant has to offer. And removes much of the downside of transplantation, like I said, with immunosuppression and all those different kinds of components to it. And you can be much more specific. So for what we for example, for what we're doing in the lab, you know, in transplant, you take the larynx, the trachea, the pharynx, thyroid gland, parathyroid gland, you take this whole group of tissue that you may not necessarily need. And it may not be a perfect fit for that person. You're trying to sometimes put a square peg in a round hole and make that work the best you can. With regenerative medicine, we have the capabilities of using that patient's CT scan and making a specific construct for them specifically and with just the tissues that they need. So like I said, it takes the good of transplantation and kind of increases that good because it removes a lot of the drawbacks.
0: So as I understand with the, with the CT scan, you construct, you make a 3D kind of printing, you use 3D printing to make the larynx. Can you take us through the process of what happens in this process of regenerative, creating a larynx through regenerative medicine?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we take the, the patient's normal CT scan that they would get for their kind of cancer surveillance. So someone who comes to me with a cancer, we can take a look at that in their office, but we just see the tip of the iceberg. We don't necessarily know what all is being is involved with the cancer. And with the CT scan, we can see everything that the cancer is involving, and we get a really good operative plan from that. So we know exactly what needs to be removed. Again, the reason most people get a laryngectomy isn't because the cancer involves the entire voice box or the entire larynx. It usually only involves half or less than half, but we can't fix the hole that's made from the resection. So we get a good operative plan and we, from that, we can take the good side, and make a mirror image of that good side, whatever we're going to remove, we can recreate that p- component on software and that software then tells the 3D printer exactly what to print and, you know, it's accurate within less than a millimeter of in um, terms of what you've created. So it's a very specific fit for that patient.
0: And the regenerative part of it, you are putting the cells. How do you get the cells for the patient?
1: There are a variety of different ways we do that. One is what we're currently looking at is what we call adipose derived stem cells. We take stem cells from the patient's fat. And this is part of the process. So we would see the patient get the CT scan at the same time, just through liposuction like plastic surgeons would do. We can get a little bit of fat just from their belly. and Most people have a little bit to spare there. So we can we can get the fat from them. And we can take that to the lab. So while we're ready and preparing the patient for the operating room, they're getting cleared, we're getting the CT scan, the scaffold, and everything's squared away. We're also expanding those cells, so increasing the number of stem cells. And then we are driving those stem cells towards what we call an epithelial lineage. So it's turning those cells into the epithelium that will then line the implant. And we then combine those two and grow those in what's called a bioreactor. So that's an instrument or kind of an environment basically that simulates the body's natural environment. So it's as close as we can get in a lab, controlled lab to the patient's natural body. And we drive those cells to the epithelium. And by the time the patient is ready for surgery, that implant is seeded with those cells that are already on their way to become an epithelium. And the body takes over from there. The body becomes its own bioreactor, which is the perfect environment for those cells.
0: So what kind of time frame does this take from doing a CT scan, creating an implant and getting the liposuction? Mm -hmm. What what kind of time frame are you looking at?
1: Yeah, we aim for three weeks. So by the time we get the cells, and again, it's it's not a sheet of epithelium at this point, it's stem cells that are already driven towards that lineage. And what we find, if you tag those stem cells and you put them in a, a living environment, Those stem cells are gone in a matter of sometimes days to weeks, but we see their effect kind of live on. And so what we think happens is they come in and they coach the the body's natural stem cells what to form. We're seeing it's less and less important to have a true epithelialized cover as it is just programming the stem cells we put in on how to teach the other cells what to do.
0: So the role of the scientist for for David Lott is to know how much stem cells has gone there and Is it ready enough for implantation or is the three-week cutoff, like everybody should have a perfectly lined up stem cell, 3D imprint already in three weeks. Is there a range of days? I mean, it could happen over a bunch of couple of weeks or does it happen faster or slower in some patients?
1: Everybody's stem cells are a little different and so their ability to grow and their ability to form a, a lining depends on how healthy they are, depends on how obese or skinny they are. Uh, there are a lot of different factors that go into how quickly these cells. And so what we can do is we actually take a look and we can see the number of cells. So we intermittently go in and we can check and we can count the number of cells. And we have various release criteria on here. Here's a minimum. Uh, number of cells before we would actually let that kind of go into a patient because below this, we're not sure if it's going to work real well. Above this, we have enough data to support that this looks pretty good for people and, and can consistently predict that it should work for that person.
0: Yeah. And once you have the patient on the table, you have, you've got that uh, implant ready, how long does it take to do the procedure?
1: The surgical side of things really depends on the surgery, but usually to do what we call a hemilaryngectomy, where you remove half of the voice box, that takes maybe two hours. Um, but to put the implant in, really is plug and play. The the defect is there, the hole is there. You have something that's created specifically for that, and we may manipulate it just a little bit because no surgery is completely predict- predictable. And then you stitch it into place and cover it. So that part takes maybe another two hours at the most. So you're you're going from something that takes eighteen hours to about four to five maybe at the most.
0: And you're scaffolding it with some muscle. I was reading part of your work, some of the implants, and now they're thinking of even not doing the scaffolding. Is that- Right, exactly.
1: Different techniques to align that scaffold.
0: So I wake up from anesthesia, I have half my larynx removed, and then can I talk right away or?
1: We ask people to not talk. So they, they will wake up with a trach tube. So a temporary tube that kind of goes in the airway to bypass that. When you stitch it into place, it takes a couple of days for that stitching area to, to completely heal in and become airtight. Plus, the cells that are on there, we don't want people coughing and coughing those off. And so we put a tube in basically to bypass the air going through their airway. But that tube eventually does come out and people are able to talk. Usually at about two to four weeks is when we start letting people talk.
0: They also have to go through some speech rehab or they should be able to talk without that.
1: Yeah, we we always have people work with a speech language pathologist for both voice therapy and swallow therapy, just because it's, it is something new. And even if they come out and they start sounding great from day one, it's still different. So if you have surgery on your ankle, you're going to go through a little bit of physical therapy afterwards, just to make sure you're optimizing the healing and the way you use that ankle again. The same thing for the voice box. You may sound good. You may swallow Okay but working with a a therapist to really get in and make sure you're optimizing that, it helps with healing.
0: So when I finally start talking, do do I sound like myself or would I sound like David Lott?
1: Does my voice change? (laughs) The answer is no. Overall, you sound like yourself. If you think about it, the, the larynx, what it is basically is the vocal folds are just guitar strings to some degree, complicated guitar strings that vibrate. So all they do is vibrate and produce a pitch and it's your pharynx, the back of your head, your sinuses that create your characteristic voice. And so if I put in a vocal fold, that's a little maybe shorter and fatter, the pitch may be a little lower, but it still sounds like your voice is speaking at a lower pitch.
0: It's too bad I wanted to sound like Kenny Rogers, but that's not gonna happen.
1: So that brings maybe, maybe down the road, we can specialize it. we can get a Kenny Rogers voice box, you know, different ones. That this <laughs>
0: is a fascinating, I mean, it almost looks like, you know, space age stuff. I mean, uh, so how many have we done uh, in Mayo Clinic?
1: There's variations on what we are doing right now, the stem cell part, we haven't gone through the FDA yet. That component of it will take some time still. So we just got an NIH grant to push that through into clinical trials. Uh, We're able to use the 3D printing technology to start doing those things for patients now and then using different things to form the epithelialized layer. Um, We have done a total of, at this point, six for the larynx and seven for the trachea.
0: This is an amazing technique, and I'm sure that we're going to hear a lot more about your work. Is there anything else your lab is working in this area?
1: Well, our lab specifically works kind of in the tissue engineering component. So it's working on ways to restore tissue loss. And so that may be anywhere from the nose for people that have had their nose completely removed for cancers or ears or mandible or really any one of the head and neck structures. A lot of the technology we've been able to design and come up with are applicable to some of the other sites within the head and neck. Uh, so we are working with other investigators and doing just those sites where again nose and ears and jaws and and trying to say hey can we really make this a universal technology for reconstruction of head and neck structures? You know, as a part of that, all of our techniques and I think this is something uh, special you know, that we've been able to create at Mayo Clinic is we have all these capabilities in a laboratory environment. So we can do the 3D printing. We also do something called electro spinning, which helps to bolster the cell adhesion onto these scaffolds. We have a, a variety of different things. We have all those in a laboratory environment, but in order to be able to implant these into patients, we need to have them also in a clean room environment. And so we're able to do all these technologies kind of manufacturing, cell manufacturing, everything in a clean room environment to where we'd be able to take them from this cleaning room indirectly implant those in, into patients, um, which again is a, is a workflow type of thing that we've also helped kind of push forward to really make these type of technologies more applicable not only here at Mayo Clinic, but kind of worldwide.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lott. This, this has been an eye-opener uh, for me. We have been talking about the regenerative techniques for larynx, and I've been talking with Dr. David Lott, who's the director of the Head and Neck Regenerative Medicine Transplantation Program. In Mayo Clinic Arizona, we've heard about life-changing procedures which are able to make a person feel whole again and the importance of larynx cannot be understated and the lack of larynx or the absence of it and what it does to a human being and what Dr. David Lott and his team is is trying to accomplish and with all the help uh, I'm sure uh, they will accomplish in the near future is nothing short of uh, is stunning. This will really help so many patients all over the world. I thank you Dr. David lot uh, for your time and we are very delighted to have you today. I hope you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast today. Please subscribe, stay healthy and see you next week with other great speaker on our show.